Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So I would invite the congregation to please stand and turn to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, as we will verse pray and then read the Word of God. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk is at the end of the Old Testament. If you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, too far, go left. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, But the righteous will live by his faith. Please be seated. So church, this verse lies at the core of genuine religion. This verse lies at the core of real piety. And this verse is so critically important that it's mentioned four times in the inerrant, infallible Word of God. It's mentioned here. It's mentioned in Romans 1.17. It's mentioned in Galatians 3.11. And it's mentioned in Hebrews 10.38. Now, before we dive in and unpack what truth this verse is communicating to us, let's make sure we're clear on terms. Our verse says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Who are the righteous? That's simple. The righteous are those who have faith in God. The righteous will live by his faith. What is faith? Faith comes from the Hebrew word emuna, which means firmness, steadfastness, or fidelity. Simply put, church, faith means a firm reliance on or trusting in God. The noun is emuna, the verb is emun. That means to be firm, to be steady. And if something just clicked in your mind and you said, hey, wait a minute, teacher, a moon sounds a lot like the word amen, you are right. Because that's exactly where our amen comes from. It comes from the Hebrew word amun. That means to be firm, to be steady. So when the Bible preaches of old, you used to get up on pulpits. When God made a promise to Abraham and said, Abraham, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars of the sky. Abraham, because he believed God, would look up at the night sky and say, Amen. He would look up at the night sky and say, a moon, because he trusted in and he relied on God. So the righteous will live by his faith, and faith, simply put, means trusting God. It's an attitude that's expressed not only in thoughts, but it's also a belief that's expressed in lifestyle, that's expressed in action. It is a firm reliance not on a philosophy, not on an idea, not on a tradition, not on an individual, not on a wish, and not on an expectation. Biblical faith is trusting in God, period. Trusting in God and God alone. And when we now make a connection to the New Testament, saving biblical faith 
simply means trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Real biblical faith means trusting in someone real, Jesus, who accomplished something real in real life and made a real atonement on a real cross. Now the title of this morning's sermon is The Life of Faith. So when the church talks about the living by faith or the life of faith, what do we actually mean? What are we talking about? And we're going to find an answer in this morning's sermon. Now when we ask the question, what does the life of faith actually look like? What does it actually feel like? We have to make sure we get a, a correct biblical answer. Because our text says, but the righteous will live by faith if we therefore make a mistake of what living by faith means. We will therefore, beloved, make a mistake about life itself. Getting an answer, getting a firm biblical understanding of what the life of faith actually is, therein is radically important. Now let's get some context. Before we get to our theme verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, where God speaks to his prophet and says, but the righteous will live by faith. Let's make sure we have the biblical setup and know the context in which God reveals that truth to his prophet. The book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk talking. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he looks up at heaven and says, How long, O Lord? He wants to know, Why, God, why? He looks out at the world around him and he sees violence, he sees injustice, he sees murder. He sees immorality. He sees people who are supposedly the chosen people of God acting like they've forgotten about the Lord. And Habakkuk wants to know, why God, why? And then in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 to 11, God gives his prophet an answer. And God says, Habakkuk, I'll tell you how long. You want to know what I'm going to do about all the violence and injustice you see around you? Here's the answer, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. And they are going to be my instruments of justice on the people, on the kingdom of Judah. Habakkuk essentially asks God, why God, why? Why don't you do something? God says, Habakkuk, I am going to do something. And the answer is, the Chaldeans are coming. And this isn't poetry. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't a symbol. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, actually came. The Chaldeans in the year 586 BC actually came to the kingdom of Judah. They actually came to the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed it. And they laid waste not only to the city, they also exiled hundreds of thousands of Judeans. And to make matters even more dire, God does not tell his prophet Habakkuk, the Chaldeans are coming, and if the people repent, I'll turn them back. God tells his prophet, the Chaldeans are coming, and nothing can stop it, because they are my instruments of justice. This is what God says in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 6 and 10 to 11. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. 
They mock at kings and rulers who are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. They will sweep through like the wind passes on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Habakkuk is not a fan of God's plan. When God tells him the Chaldeans are coming, he's not exactly liking God's answer. And in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 13 to 17, this is what Habakkuk says. He speaks to God and says, Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? Habakkuk asks God a question, God answers. Habakkuk doesn't like God's answer, so he asks God another question. He says, God, the Chaldeans are the bad guys. The Chaldeans, their strength is their God. They're idolaters. They are members of the unrighteous. How can you, God, use them to be the instruments of justice on the people of Judah. So that's the setup. That is the context of what is happening in reality before God speaks to his prophet and says, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the setup is judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. Destruction is coming. The best is not going to come. The worst is going to come. And there is no hope for national deliverance. None. But God tells his prophet, while there not, may not be any hope for deliverance for the nation, there is hope for individual deliverance. There is hope for individual salvation. And God says there is one way, there is one means by which a man may preserve his life. And that's when God says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Faith is the instrument by which a man will be preserved in the midst of God's unstoppable wrath. So now that's the setup. So now, church, when we're talking about the life of faith, when we're talking about what does the life of faith actually mean in a world that nudges us to live by sight, if the righteous will live by faith, what does the life of faith actually look like? So here's the first point. Point number one is only the righteous live the life of faith. For the text says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Guess who does not live the life of faith? Idolaters. Guess who does not live the life of faith? Those people who can't bother with God. Guess who does not bother knowing what the life of faith actually means? Those who are prideful or those who are too puffed up. Because the prideful person considers him or herself too important for faith. They consider... They never consider, rather, what the life of faith actually means. They are too busy, they are too distracted, or they simply cannot be bothered. But I want to make sure the church understands something. When we talk about a boastful or a prideful person, I don't want you to formalize in your mind an image of someone who's literally puffed up who has their chest sticking out, who's overtly snobby, or who's overtly uppity. Someone who is prideful can be very, very subtle and deceptive, and they simply live by the mantra that they know better or they can do better than God. That's what pride on the inside, that's how it manifests on the outside. And as a result, now they turn away from God, they turn away from his word, they turn away from his church, they turn away from his wisdom, and they turn away 
from his inerrant truth. So only the righteous will live by his faith. How does someone become declared righteous? And the answer is, by the grace of God. No one makes themselves righteous. No one declares themselves to be right with God. You cannot be righteous without faith, and the way in which a person is able to respond to God in faith is by the grace, is by the unmerited favor, is by the gift of God. Church, the righteous person realizes they know the reason why they are righteous has nothing to do with them. They realize the reason why they are righteous has everything to do with God. Hence, they are not prideful or boastful. They are humble. The righteous who live by faith not only trust in God, they not only trust his word, they also trust in God's method for making, for declaring someone righteous. Church, there are no righteous men who don't have faith. There are no good people without faith. There are no moral people without faith. There are no just people without faith. How can you be just if the one who you trust in, if the one who you have your eyes locked on in life is not the ultimate lawgiver, is not the ultimate standard of justice? How can someone actually be moral if they don't trust the one who defined what's right and wrong in the first place. You cannot be righteous without trusting God because only the righteous live the life of faith. The righteousness of the righteous is something that's alien to them. A righteous person is righteous because they hold on to Jesus Christ. If a person is outside of Christ, without our precious Lord and Savior, all you have left, church, is a person who has now committed cosmic treason against God in the form of sin. And there is no way that person can ever be right with God, which is why the only way we can be declared righteous is if God pardons us. And if God, by his grace, imputes his righteousness through the life of Jesus Christ unto one of his own. The righteousness of the righteous is not theirs. It's gifted, imputed to them as a function of holding on to Jesus Christ. Second point, the life of faith is simple for the righteous because it was difficult for Christ. The life of faith is simple for the righteous because it was difficult for Christ. The life of faith is simple for the righteous. How do we live? By faith. Simple. Doesn't get any more complicated than that. But if someone were to say, you mean all I have to do is just trust in God and I get saved and that's it, they haven't gotten it yet. They don't understand how faith actually works. The life of faith for us is simple because of what Jesus did, which from our perspective is inconceivable. Realize the reason why faith is real, the reason why faith is an instrument of salvation is because Jesus Christ did what is impossible for a human being. For 30 plus years on earth, he spent every second of every day obeying and fulfilling the perfect law of God, not only in action, not only in word, even in thought. Can you understand what that is? Our finite minds can't even contain what that perfect obedience looks like. Of course not, because only God in the flesh could accomplish that. But not only that, not only did he live perfect perfection for three plus decades, he also endured the wrath of God on the cross. And no finite human being stands a chance when it comes to enduring the wrath of God. So our faith 
isn't hoping on a fairy tale. Our faith isn't holding on to thin air. Our faith is holding on to something real that Jesus Christ did for us. And it's because of what he did in his life of obedience and his atonement that now is the means by which we live and which we are saved. The life of faith is simple for the righteous because it was complicated for Jesus. Here's the third point. The life of faith is very narrow. For our text says, but the righteous will live by his faith. This means the righteous person refuses to accept any other mode of life other than by faith. It's never by wish projection. It's never by expectation. It's never by trusting in someone other than God. The righteous person's life is very narrow, and the road of life that they walk in is paved by one line of bricks, and every step they take is by faith. And because, church, the way of life for the righteous is very narrow, the righteous person who lives by faith is the only person who's really thinking in life, is the only person who has a sober, honest assessment of what reality really is. Just look at Habakkuk. God tells Habakkuk, his prophet, Habakkuk, your world is about to collapse. Habakkuk could not reject, he could not minimize, he could not downplay, he could not hide under a rock. Habakkuk had to embrace the totality of everything God told him. And then, considering all the facts, considering all the data, considering all the evidence, with eyes wide open, weighing everything, it is then that God says, now Habakkuk, after you consider everything I've just told you, but the righteous will live by faith. Living the narrow walk of faith church means you see God's servant David and you see Goliath. You don't deny or reject anything. You say, naturally speaking, the shepherd boy is going to lose. You say, naturally speaking, using reasoning and logic, there's no way this little runt could ever take the giant down. But then you say, because this little man called David is God's chosen, anointed servant, I believe and I trust God. Living the life of faith, which is narrow, means you're at Mount Carmel. You see 850 prophets against God and one man for God. You embrace the reality. The odds are 850 to 1. And with all of that data, all of those facts, all of that knowledge in your mind, you say, but... I trust and believe the God of the universe. Living a life of faith which is very narrow never means we dismiss thinking, never means we dismiss facts, never means we deny or minimize what's really real. We consider everything looking out at the world around us and then cast our eyes on God and simply say, Lord, I trust you. So the life of faith is very narrow. Fourth point, the life of faith is also very broad. The text does not say which, does not specify which part of life the righteous will live by faith. It simply says the righteous will live by faith, meaning what? Every facet, every corner, every sphere, every area of life is lived by faith. The righteous who live by faith have a life that starts in faith. It grows in faith. It ends in faith. It serves in faith. It eats in faith. It sleeps in faith. It prays in faith. It fights. It preaches. It teaches in faith. It cries in faith. It laments in faith. It groans in faith. It wrestles with God in faith. 
It sheds tears on a sleepless night, not knowing, not understanding, not being able to comprehend, asking why God, why? But it says, God, in the end, I trust you. The life of faith is a spiritual life. It's not a natural life. It's not lived by sight. It's not lived by natural means. And even if someone has a mustard seed's worth of faith, that is a degree of faith by which you live. If you have a mustard seed worth of faith, that mustard seed drop of trusting in God is what animates and what drives you living your life. And as you grow with God, as you become more intimate with him, and that mustard seed now grows into a tree and to a mountain of faith, that faith now consumes and touches every aspect of your life. The life of faith is a very broad because it touches every aspect of life. Fifth point, the life of faith is assured. The other way of translating this verse is, by faith the righteous will live. Not perhaps will live, not may live, it is by faith the righteous will live. There's a certainty. There's a guarantee. Why will the righteous live? Because God is the one who authored that life. At the start of a believer's life, faith is the instrument that God uses to awaken a dead sinner into a regenerated believer. And when God causes someone to be born again, guess what? He never makes them unborn. When God regenerates someone and opens their heart to respond in faith, he never unregenerates them. He never pulls someone out of the grave of darkness to put them back in. Because once God starts something, he finishes it. And as a result, the life of faith is assured. It's assured in the middle. God never raises someone to believe in his son, so they start believing, then stop. Once they start, they there cleave to Jesus and trust in him throughout their entire life. And the more someone cleaves, the more someone holds on to Jesus Christ. He being the living stone that we are attached to, he is now the one that gives us more life fuller life, more abundance in life as a function of the one who is eternal. The life of faith is also assured in the end because by faith the righteous will live. We will not just live now, church. We will also live forever. The text does not say by faith the righteous will die. It says, by faith, the righteous will live. And God will be the one who, through his providential care, makes sure that life is full now and makes sure that life is full in eternity with him forever. Now, to make sure we're all oriented, Habakkuk begins his book asking God a question. He says, why God, why? God gives his prophet an answer. Habakkuk then says, God, how can you use the bad guys? How can you use the Chaldeans to judge your own people? Habakkuk was essentially asking at the end of chapter one, what about the Chaldeans? What about them? Our text does not say, but the righteous will live by worrying about the Chaldeans, does it? Our text says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Here's the sixth point. The life of faith is 
private. The life of faith is private, meaning everyone lives by his, by her, by their own individual, personal, private faith. We never live by the faith of our elder. We never live by the faith of the church corporatively. We never live by the faith of the family member. We live primarily worrying about our own relationship and our own trust in God. Look at what God does. Habakkuk asks God, what about the Chaldeans? God's initial answer is Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. God basically says, yes, Habakkuk, what about the Chaldeans? How will worrying about them actually preserve you in my coming wrath? God begins answering his prophet by telling him, you ought not to worry about them. You ought to worry about yourself first and worry about first your own standing with God. God says, Habakkuk, let me deal with the Chaldeans. So after God tells his prophet, worry about your faith first, what's the next thing he says? Because God doesn't simply say, never mind. God says himself to the Chaldeans, their own appetite is their God. God then assures his prophet he's not going to say never mind, nor is his justice going to be denied. After God tells Habakkuk that the righteous will live by faith, the next thing he tells his prophet is that the unrighteous will die by their unbelief. And in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 19, God pronounces five woes on the Chaldeans. Here's what verse 6 says. Woe to him who increases what is not his. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. God tells his prophet Habakkuk, when you look out the world around you, when the Chaldeans come and they invade Judah, it may seem like when they're there, the Chaldeans are winning. It may seem like when they're there, like the forces of the world are triumphing. It may seem like when they're there, that trusting in me may be the nonsensical thing to do. But God tells his prophet, the same appetite, that same unquenchable desire that drives them to come and wipe out the people of Judah, that appetite is going to consume them. And the unquenchable appetite that they have will end up digging their own grave. And at the end of chapter 2, God does not say that the earth ultimately will be filled with the glory of the Chaldeans. He says, ultimately, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Here's what chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 says. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we've been through six points so far. And the question we have to ask ourselves now is, does Habakkuk, does Habakkuk actually believe what God is telling him? God tells his prophet, but the righteous will live by faith. Does Habakkuk actually believe that? Because when the book begins, Habakkuk is frustrated. Habakkuk says, why God, why? Habakkuk says, God, this doesn't make any sense. Why won't you do something? God then says, but the righteous will live by his faith. Does Habakkuk actually trust God? And the answer is yes. Because the book of Habakkuk ends in a song. 
The book of Habakkuk ends in a hymn of praise. The entire chapter 3 of Habakkuk reads like a psalm, and the very last line of that chapter says, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. After God breaks the bad news to Habakkuk and he is transformed, he is turned in his heart by God's divine hand. Even though Habakkuk anticipates the worst, he ends praising and glorifying God, despite the fact that his world is about to crumble. Here is how the book of Habakkuk ends, verses 3, 16 to 19. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. But I, I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Church, in order to understand what God is telling us in Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous will live by faith, we now have to realize the context in which it was communicated to Habakkuk. This hymn of praise is not someone who had a mental illness. This hymn of praise is not someone who suddenly became disconnected from reality. This hymn of praise was written by a man who expected and then literally saw his entire world crumble. His entire world was flipped upside down, where men died, where women died, where children died, where flocks died, where, where Habakkuk would literally look out at the world around him and see carnage and see evidences and traces of wrath. But what the prophet ends up saying is, the righteous will live by faith, not in fruits, in figs, in friends, in flocks, or finances, but by simply trusting God. Does the church have the bold and resilient faith to trust God no matter what? That is what the life of faith is made of, meaning when your world is burning down in ashes and every single object of trust and hope you can see with your eyes literally dies, literally is crumbled to the ground, but then you look up at heaven and say, but God, I trust you because you are God. Here's the sixth point, the seventh point, excuse me. The life of faith is the most alive in the worst of all situations. The life of faith is the most alive in the worst of all situations. The life of faith means you could lose everything but still praise God, knowing that in Christ you have everything. The life of faith means you can lose the present, but know you will never lose eternity. The life of faith means you can lose stuff, but know you will never lose paradise. The life of faith means you may lose approval, accolades, or recognition, but you will never lose the love of your Heavenly Father. Real biblical faith church actually flourishes in adversity because in adversity, whom you really trust, what you actually trust is exposed. The life of faith church means 
that you are about to enter into the fiery furnace. You don't trust God because he'll save you. You trust God, period. Meaning, if he saves you, praise God. But if you burn in the furnace, you will tell God how much you love him in paradise. The life of faith means looking your wife in the eye and telling her, we're still going to trust God if you lose the baby. We're still going to trust God if this pregnancy doesn't end in a live birth, if it ends in a miscarriage. Trusting God means that all of your hopes, all of your desires, that outcome that you thought was going to happen is shattered and burned to the ground. Where life doesn't get infinitely better, life gets infinitely worse. But then in spite of all that, you say, God, I trust you. And why do we trust him? We trust him because God is our father. We trust the one who sent his son, who sent his only child to die for us. We trust the one who in that suffering, in that adversity, we can call upon the name of Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I am weak and I'm about to break. And he can say, my child, I understand. I can relate to your suffering because for six hours on that cross, I endured the wrath of God. We can look at Jesus Christ now or in paradise and see where he was pierced and he suffered and he was brutalized for our iniquities. So now we do not stand in that adversity in our strength. We stand in that adversity in his precious strength. The book of Habakkuk ends in a psalm. The book of Habakkuk ends in a hymn of praise. Habakkuk is the one who, under divine inspiration, wrote the psalm. Habakkuk is actually singing the psalm. Habakkuk is singing, I will exult in the Lord, for he has made my feet like hinds feet. And the question I have for the church this morning is, do you actually really trust God no matter what? Because if you do, regardless of what is happening around you, you want to join in with Habakkuk and sing with him. To exult, to praise, to glorify the Lord. Church, living the life of faith simply means, can you, do you, will you trust God no matter what? Do you actually believe that God is the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God of everything? Do you actually believe that? Because once you do, the only thing to do is to trust him no matter what, because you and I can never compete with God. We can never do better than his plan. It may not make sense to us in the moment. We may not have all the answers, but when we actually believe that God is God, period, then trusting him no matter what is the reasonable thing to do. As I always preach, Eternity matters more than the present. The present may seem to belong to the unrighteous. The present may seem not to make any sense. The present may seem not to be fair. The present may seem as if all of this can't possibly be God's plan. The present may seem as if trusting in God is actually the foolish thing to do. But while the present may seem many things, the future belongs to the righteous who have faith. Because by faith, the righteous will live. The future does not belong to those who die 
by their unbelief. In closing, church, what I'll say is this. You've heard me say multiple times this morning, the Chaldeans are coming, the Chaldeans are coming, the Chaldeans are coming. And you may honestly say, Bible teacher, I don't see any Chaldeans coming. I don't see any threat of a Babylonian invasion coming across my front lawn. And I agree with you. I don't see any Chaldeans coming either. But what's the principle? What's the spiritual message God is giving us? God was telling his prophet his wrath was coming. And the thing that would preserve a person from his wrath is the instrument of faith. Something that is gifted to an individual as a function of God's mercy. God's grace, God's mercy is what causes the faith. God was telling his prophet, the thing that's going to preserve an individual in the midst of God's wrath is God's mercy. There's only one thing. There's only one person that can turn away the wrath of God. And that's God. Do you realize, church, what this, what this text is telling us? Divine mercy, divine grace is so potent, it's so powerful, it can preserve a person in the midst of divine wrath. Wait a minute. So you may not have instruments of divine wrath knocking on your door anytime soon, but what the righteous have access to is God's mercy. So I ask you this, church, if God's mercy can preserve you from divine wrath, it doesn't matter what life throws at you. It doesn't stand a chance up against divine grace up against divine mercy. Nothing can outmatch God's grace, and praise be to God that his mercies and graces are new each and every morning, and how do we secure those mercies? By trusting him. By believing God. By firmly relying on our Lord and our Savior. The final point I'll make is this. When we zoom out from the book of Habakkuk, things may not have made sense for Habakkuk in the moment, but the ultimate meaning of reality can never be discerned in the moment. We can never judge the plans and purposes of a timeless, eternal God in little snippets of time. So while things may not have made sense to Habakkuk in the moment, when we now zoom out and get a bigger biblical picture, things begin to unfold. The book of Habakkuk tells us that divine mercy preserves a man from God's wrath, and that mercy is, is bestows upon the gift of faith. That's the instrument by which someone is preserved. When we talk about now salvation, and the judgment of God, his wrath, that comes upon a sinner, the thing that preserves us, the thing that saves us from God's wrath, is by trusting in Jesus Christ, is by believing in him, which is a gift of God. And while Habakkuk may have anticipated God's wrath through the form of the Chaldeans looking forward, he could also only look forward to the coming Messiah. The difference between Habakkuk and us is that while he looked forward, we now look back. We now look back on the cross, where if we were standing in front of Jesus as he was being crucified, we could have said, God, this doesn't make any sense. But now when we zoom out, we would now see that the torture and the brutality of the cross was actually an act of grace so that God unleashing his wrath on his son now meant for all those who trust in him, we would not have to bear the brunt of divine wrath and fury. Church Habakkuk may have only been able to anticipate Jesus, but we now look back and we now look up. 
with our eyes dead set on our Lord and Savior. Because the final point is that the life of faith always has its eyes on Christ. The life of faith always has eyes wide open, looking at a crumbling world, and then gazing at an unshakable God and saying, God, I trust you no matter what. Let's pray. Precious Lord, the life of faith is a life that you have called all your servants to live. For as a spiritual people who serve a spiritual God and who are members of a spiritual kingdom, we know we are not natural men and women who live by natural means. But we know, O oh Lord, that we, will ne we would never be able to live a spiritual life had it not been for your divine spirit working in and through us. We know there's a difference between hearing a sermon about the life of faith and now actually living it. So we entreat you, precious Lord, divine spirit, to refine our faith, to refine our hearts, to expand our minds, to illuminate our understanding, and to make our faith, O oh Lord, cause our hearts to turn so that truly and earnestly, no matter what, we will trust you, we will cleave to you, we will rely on you. That men, that situations, that circumstances, that what we see by sight will never take our spiritual eyes away from you. For we know, Lord Jesus, you are the one who suffered for us. And while you may permissively allow adversity and strife to hit the lives of your servants, you are the one who also strengthens and equips your people to stand firm like fortified walls of brass in that adversity. Lord God, your mercy is what makes all things possible. For without your mercy, we would be but dust. And I entreat you, both individually and corporately, to shower your love and to shower your mercy upon your people today. So we will be a people who will individually walk by one mode of life, by faith. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.